everybody, and welcome to mini-episode number 13 of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Mini-episodes of Attendance Bias feature a breakdown of a single song or a jam from a show that I've attended. I'll give you a little background about what makes that song or that jam so special to me, and then we dive right in. Mini-episodes are posted on a bi-weekly basis in between full episodes of Attendance Bias when a guest and I will go over a full fish show. Today's mini-episode features Susie Greenberg from September 14th, 2000 at the Darien Lake Performing Arts Center in Darien Center, New York. I'm the only fish fan in my family. I don't have and I've never had a familial tie to the band or the scene surrounding it. My older brother didn't turn me on to fish, my older cousin never saw a few shows in college, and my parents weren't deadheads who led me down the path toward unconventional psychedelic music. Aside from a few friends who were also into fish, I was pretty much on my own when I began to explore the world when I was 14. I tried to bridge that family gap once at this show in 2000, and it didn't quite take, but before that experiment failed... There was some fun to be had, that fleeting moment of hope, that set break during the band's show at Darien Lake on September 14th, 2000, right after an all-time Susie Greenberg. This show has become very well known due to its release as part of the first batch of official Live Fish releases. I imagine that the mammoth ethereal drowned in the second set made it stand out to whoever picked those releases, but before that psychedelic ambient masterpiece... The band closed a very, very short first set with Susie Greenberg that had a 10-minute straight rock and roll jam attached to the end. I graduated high school in the spring of 2000, and I began my freshman year of college at the State University of New York at Buffalo that fall. My older brother, Scott, was beginning his senior year at UB at the same time. Other than being college students at the same school, we had virtually nothing else in common. As the school year began, it was a really nice coincidence that Fish had a show scheduled for their fall tour at Darien Lake, a 25-minute drive from campus. I had to go, and Scott had no interest in Fish. He didn't, and he still doesn't care for their music. He doesn't care for the scene, the stereotypes he pictures, or anything else involved with the band. However, he did have one very important puzzle piece regarding this show. He had a car, and I didn't. So I made an offer. I told Scott I would buy him a ticket and he would provide a ride to the show. I thought it was a fair deal because as disinterested as he was in Fish, he heard enough about the lot scene that he figured he should experience it at least once. So he agreed to that offer. He gave me a bunch of money to get tickets for himself and two or three of his friends. Whether or not he ended up liking the music, we were all in it together. So on a cloudy and overcast day, we got to the lot. It was me, a 17-year-old freshman who had just arrived on campus about two weeks prior, and then him and his friends, a group of 21-year-old seniors who were just starting their farewell year of college. The funny part is that, while they're completely familiar with school and the surroundings, here in the lot, I was the pro. So we cruised Shakedown Street with a beer or two, and everyone was having a great time during this pre-show entertainment, because this was unlike any party my brother and his friends had ever seen. We were really having fun, but things were more than a little sketchy. I particularly remember a glassy-eyed, dreadlocked, shirtless wook walking up to me and asking where the porta-potties were. I had no idea, so I just kind of pointed in a random direction and said, I don't know, man, maybe over there? 
He made eye contact with me and coughed, <coughs> thanks, before he reached out a fist and said, for your troubles, <laughs> with a little giggle. He dropped a little pink pill into my hand. Now, I'm a cautious drug taker by nature, but I would have to have serious judgment problems to consider taking some weird, unlabeled, unmarked pink pill that came from a wook who just crawled out of the muck. The anecdote is what reminds me of the atmosphere in Fish World at the time. It's reflective of what led the band to take their hiatus. It was announced just a few weeks later in Las Vegas. Things were fun, no doubt, and the music was very good most of the time, but there were some very gloomy situations in the scene, and you didn't have to look very far to find them. I mean, one example literally walked up to me and dropped it into my hands. The band was just getting too big, and the scene was getting frayed along the edges. It wasn't for everybody, and it was sometimes hard to digest. This aspect was also reflected in the music that night, especially in that second set. Darien Lake Performing Arts Center is a huge tent with a lawn in the back. It's not the same as every shed you've ever been to. The ceiling is very, very high, and the reserved area goes very far back. So the high ceilings of this tent create this sort of cavernous echo, so the sound comes from the stage and swirls. On this night, that would be a great asset, because the band played an experimental masterpiece in the second set, but first things first. The first set got off to a really inspired start with Punch You in the Eye, and Trey's guitar effects benefited mightily from the venue's huge sound. Carini got just enough out there to tease the crowd, but the major highlight of the set was the ending Susie Greenberg, when the band got so into it that they weren't ready to end the set at the end of the song. Instead, they added a 10-minute rock jam that made it one of the best Susie Greenbergs ever. Susie started as a straight segue from the Okipa ceremony. As any Deep Fish fan knows, this is a traditional pairing, although this was the first time the band had done it since the summer of 1998 in Lakewood, and they wouldn't do it again until 2004 in Brooklyn. Listening back to the audience recording, I automatically noticed two things. First, the music feels more energetic than usual. Second, the huge sound. I don't know if this show was sold out, but you can hear that all four instruments are already swirled together and blended by the time the sound reaches the audience mics. Granted, I didn't see too many shows in the 99-2000 era, but I did listen to a lot of recordings since CD burners and faster widespread internet access became more common at the time. Even though my favorite shows were from five or six years in the past, like 1995, I was able to hear the most recent tours literally days after they were played. For people who were used to on-demand fish, this is really a major game changer. It's hard to explain how crazy it was that you can use your computer to listen to songs right after they were played, literally within a week. 
sites like nugs.net and links from Andy Gadiel's fish page really changed the way that I listened to the band. And they were capable of musical genius at the time, no doubt, and killer jams all over. It still felt like they were missing something. I think that my finger landed on playfulness as the word. In 1994-95, those were my favorite years because the band was not only musical savants, but they also had a huge sense of humor that came through in virtually every show. I thought that was missing from a lot of late 90s shows, and that's part of what made me fall in love with them in the first place. But something simple, like the fact that Trey teased the Okipas ceremony at the beginning of the first break of Susie, made me think that maybe something else was up this time. Along with that theme, the band was playing with the structure of the song, and Susie's one of their most straightforward songs. When they begin Susie Greenberg, one of their oldest, you pretty much know what you're in for. A single on chorus, Fishman screeching, Trey rock guitar, and Paige at his boogie-woogie best. This time, both Trey and Paige backed off about halfway through the song and let Mike shine. The band would keep this groove going for nearly four minutes. Normally, it would take everything in the world for Trey to keep quiet, but this time, he was transfixed by the groove, just like the rest of us.
In what sounds like a preview of what was about to come minutes later, Mike holds down one note as if he was signaling to the rest of the band that he's ready to move on. Trey caught on and brings the guitar back, making some space for Fishman drum breaks. Fishman is on record in the Fish book, I think it is, as saying that he thinks drum solos are terribly boring. But that doesn't stop him from fully kicking ass toward the end of the song portion of Susie with his drum breaks. slows down to end the song very soon after that short jam, but they weren't done just yet. They extended that fun Susie jam for about another 10 minutes at the end of the set. One might say that they were inspired and not done kicking around those three chords. Personally, I'm a little more cynical. I think that someone glanced at the clock and realized that the set had only been about 45 minutes up to that point. Set times toward the end of 1.0 fluctuated very wildly, It wasn't like now when you can reliably look at your watch and count the set times and know exactly when they would start and end. But set times back then, they could go an hour and a half or they literally could go like this one, an hour and two minutes. Just the same, 45 minutes or an hour would be a drastically short amount of time for a set. So it wasn't surprising that Susie didn't end the set, but it was very surprising that they extended that song for another 10 minutes just for a straight up rock jam. It started with the usual groove, and no one was ready to take the lead. After a while, the groove was solidified and it was looking for somewhere to go. Just when it felt like someone should take the ball and run with it, there were very few changes. For someone like me who loves new, interesting jams and improvisation, I was getting a little antsy, but when I looked to my right, I saw my brother and his friends head bobbing and grooving. I had a huge smile. This was the best entry point for someone who had never really dug into fish before. This was easy, it was repetitive, it was rocking. Forget the band for a minute, forget me. It was my brother just having fun, and that was enough for me to be thrilled. Just when everything is locked in, Trey adds a new rhythmic layer to the groove, and I'm thrilled with everything about life at that moment. (laughs) ¶¶ 
So many guests have picked fish shows from 1999 to discuss for this podcast. And as I listen to more and more late 1.0 shows, it's become obvious that one of the band's greatest talents during that era is their control of group dynamics. In this very special jam, the energy builds and builds without the audience even realizing that we've reached a new peak until we actually arrive there. The subtleties of this peak and this jam, they aren't as apparent as it is on the soundboard, but the energy is undeniable no matter how you're listening. And to end this short set, Trey tells the audience how much fun it is to be playing, quote, under this big tent. And the crowd is ecstatic. After the set, I asked Scott how he felt and what he thought. He was gushing. I'll never forget it. He was gushing about how awesome the set was. He was all jazzed up. However, the second set, the extended jams during the second set, kind of let the air out of his balloon. And it wasn't the best impression for a new fan. Fish.net describes that 30-minute set opening drowned as, quote, one of the more challenging jams to appreciate. It may take several listens to fully sink in. And for someone who's not really into the band in the first place, I don't think someone really wants to work to appreciate a jam. And for my brother, it's just not his style. I understand that one Fish show is enough for him. And so on the way out, I asked him what he thought of his first show, and I'll never forget his response. It perfectly encapsulates the perspective of a non-fan who nevertheless enjoyed his time. He said, quote, I liked everything except the music. Friends and fans, we are inching closer and closer to a rather unfortunate anniversary. It will soon be a full calendar year without any fish shows for the first time since 2008. The last time Fish took the stage was during their four-night run at Moon Palace Resort in Cancun, Mexico, from February 20th to 23rd in 2020. I attended these shows, and rather than getting down in the dumps thinking about all the potential Fish music that we missed in 2020, I was hoping to reminisce about the great times and the awesome music from those four nights. So, I was able to gather three of my good friends to go over the four nights from Riviera Maya 2020. Next week, we are going to review all four nights plus the resort itself, so next week's episode will be a little longer than usual, and it will be released on Friday, February 19th to coincide with the one-year anniversary. So next week, please join myself, 
Mike Capolino of Massachusetts, Chase Turner of New York, and Greg Ewan of North Carolina as we indulge a bit in the memories and the all-inclusive resort, the ideal vibes, and the musical highlights of Mexico 2020 on Attendance Bias. Thank you always for listening, and we'll see you next week.